a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is where we talk about global issues, something that is happening in the world. Dr. Keith breaks it down for us. There is no one better equipped to do that. Many PhDs on international relations. I just say many now as opposed to like (laughs) how many. Um, And we've worked together for a number of years and he's also an Australian commentator and media and has been for international relations and international topics for decades. Don't want to allude to how old you are, Keith, but you're (laughs) certainly of the vintage where you can be an expert in a field. (laughs) And my name's Kate Mack. So we've worked together for a number of years, both in, um, in television and also here in this podcast. Dr. Keith, garbage collectors should earn more than bankers is the name of this one, for very good reason. <laughs> this is an article that uh, was written back in 2016 by Rutger Bregman, who's a very creative economist. So all of his material is well worth tracking down. So this is an article which you can very easily find on the internet, Why Garbage Men Should Earn More Than Bankers. And it occurred to me because at this time in Australia when we're still suffering from all the COVID and all those issues, we People keep talking about the essential workers, the cleaners, and all the rest of it. A lot of them, of course, are are in lockdown areas of Sydney, and and we really need them to be back on the job as quickly as possible. And Rutgers Bregman did a very interesting piece well before COVID came along, just focusing on the importance of what he calls the garbage men. So this is um, a group of workers who are in New York. Now, he begins his article with the a dispute that began in February 1968 when 7,000 New York sanitation workers decided to go on strike for more money and better terms and conditions. And the city mayor uh, just uh, said, no, we're not going to pay any more. And they said, well, we're not going to collect the garbage. So uh, every day, 10,000 tonnes of garbage was added to the streets. They were just piling up in dustbins and whatever. I was in New York two years later and they were still talking about this disaster. It was so memorable. The city stank to high heaven. Oh, awful. Remember that we're, we're talking, we're moving into spring and then after that it'll be summer. So really awful time. And in the end, the city had to declare a state of emergency. It's the first time they'd done so since 1931 when there was um, a polio epidemic. Of course, they've had to do it more recently because of COVID. And the mayor refused to to do anything. But eventually, public opinion forced him to pay more money to the garbage men. And later on in the article, he does comment on the fact that if you are a garbage man, it's very physically demanding, I've got to say, but you are now much more reasonably paid. Not as much as bankers get, but um, you can get up to $70,000 plus overtime and perks and they keep the, the city running. I think New Yorkers really appreciate the work that is being done. So that's the story of garbage men. Now, what was interesting is that Rutgers Bregman, the economist, then decides to move out into looking at how wealth is earned in society. So if garbage men go out on strike, the sanitation workers aren't clearing the streets, he said you, you do notice that pretty quickly and you smell it very quickly. But he says, you know, not everybody is in that same category as being an essential worker. Imagine, for instance, that all of Washington's 100,000 lobbyists were to go on strike tomorrow. You wouldn't notice that. It'd just improve the quality of life 
uh, in terms of American politics or every tax accountant in Manhattan decided to stay home. You wouldn't notice that. So you've got some jobs that are really important and others that are not. And um, the late David Graeber actually wrote a book, which I'm not allowed to use the title on air, but wrote a book about jobs which are quite irrelevant to modern society. Many people see themselves as doing jobs. I'll abbreviate it, BS jobs. <laughs> and that was, that was the book that Graeber wrote and really put sociology on the map. He said, look, um, a number of people just really are doing jobs which are really not that essential. So they spend their entire working lives doing jobs they consider to be pointless, like a telemarketer, human uh, resources manager, social media strategist, PR advisor, and a whole host of administrative positions at hospitals, universities, and government officials, what he called BS jobs. As a, he, in the title of his book, he, he goes into more detail on that exact phrase. So Rutgers Brigman is, on the one hand, saying sanitation workers are very important, but we have a whole host of other people in society that are really not that so significant. And for him, it reflects, to a certain extent, particularly in banking, what's called the financialization of the economy. So you have people who earn a living by making things. They're growing food, they're making widgets in factories, et cetera. They're driving children to school on school buses, et cetera, as you get in the United States. They're doing things that are helpful. You've got other people who make money by simply getting money to circulate. And that's what's going on now in the finance sector. It's what we see here in real estate in Australia, that we see homes being bought and sold Real estate agents don't buy new homes, don't build new homes. They just keep the money circulating. And, and a lot of the, the money that goes on the, the stock exchange is just money that's getting recycled. And, of course, as we pointed out at the time of the Trump government, there is a mismatch between the stock exchange and the ordinary working life of people. Um, and we're seeing it this week, actually, in Australia, that the stock exchange has had a, a record week in terms of economic growth. And yet when you walk around Sydney, the city's dead and Sydney is the beating heart of Australia. So there is this mismatch between what's going on in the financial area and what everyday life is like for the ordinary Australian. So this is what Bregman was talking about, the way that there are some jobs that are clearly more important than others, but they're not necessarily going to get better paid. So bankers earn a lot more than garbage men, but it's the garbage men that really make a difference to our lives we can live without bankers. And it's funny because you see this as well play out, like you played out during the Trump era. So I'm not sure how much was actually happening to the bottom line in America and whether people's lives were actually getting better under Trump, but often the headlines were all about the stock market. And he would say things publicly to make the stock market go up. And I don't know whether his followers would have realised there is no correlation no. between the way <laughs> their living standards and the stock market, it makes a good headline. The stock market's gone up for America. Yeah. That might make them feel like that, that the country's doing well. However, it can go down just as easily. It's very volatile. But also, as you say, the most important point, it has no impact on their livelihoods. The stock exchange is simply a barometer of rich people's feelings. <laughs> it's not a reflection on the state yeah. of the economy. Mm-hmm. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. We're talking about, I guess, well, the, look, the headline is that garbos or garbage collectors should be earning more than bankers because what they contribute to society actually makes your life better yep. and easier. 
What do bankers do? They make rich people money. <laughs> and it's a very interesting, you know, as we, as we found out, when the garbage men went on strike in New York in 1968, there was chaos within days. However, there's actually a case study, and I'd completely forgotten this. I'd, I was living in Britain at the time, but I'd completely forgotten that the Ireland's bank employees did go on strike. <laughs> the country kept going. This was back in, in May of 1970. After various fruitless negotiations over wages, um, which had failed to keep place with inflation, Ireland's bank employees decided to go on strike. Overnight, 85% of the country's reserves were locked down because the banks weren't open. And with all indications suggesting that the strike could last a while, businesses across Ireland began to hoard their cash. So ordinarily, you think, oh, banks are just so important. Uh, for a country, Ireland will fall into chaos. But it didn't. And so that's why, as I say, living across the Irish Channel, the Irish Sea, I didn't even know or couldn't remember until I'd read this article that, in fact, there'd been this crisis in Ireland. So you had all these predictions that Ireland was going to come to a standstill. Uh, the strike went on for s- uh, six months. That's 20 times as long as the New York strike for the sanitation workers. Six months. And yet Ireland continued to tick over. And an Irish journalist a few years ago said to Rutgers Bregman, the main reason I cannot recollect much about the bank strike was because it did not have a major impact on our daily life. As I say, and I was across the other side of the Irish Sea and I'd completely forgotten about this. So, so what had happened then? How were they able to go for six months without banking? Well, quite simple the Irish started issuing their own cash. After the bank closures, they continued writing checks to one another as usual, the only difference being that they could no longer be cashed at the bank. Instead, they went to the other dealer in liquid assets, a great phrase, the other dealer in liquid assets, the Irish pub. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. So uh, the Irish pub stepped in to fill the void. At a time when the Irish still stopped for a pint at their local at least three times a week, everyone, especially the bartender, had a pretty good idea of who could be trusted. The managers of these retail outlets and public houses had a high degree of information about their customers. As one economist said, one does not serve a drink to someone for years without discovering something about their liquid resources, liquid resources this time being money. In no time, people forged a radically decentralised monetary system with the country's 11,000 pubs. It's only 3 million people, but they've got 11,000 pubs, as its key nodes. And there was this basic trust as the underlying mechanism. By the time the banks finally reopened six months later, the Irish had printed an incredible five billions worth of Irish pounds in homemade currency. Some cheques had been issued by companies, Others were scribbled on the backs of cigar boxes or even on toilet paper. According to one historian, the reason the Irish were able to manage so well without banks was all down to social cohesion. There's a high level of trust within the Republic of Ireland. You knew who you were dealing with. You knew you weren't dealing with a con person and therefore you really didn't need to go to the bank. Now, of course, you do need banks for major areas of finance. If you want to buy a house, for example, but it is fascinating. Um, what, what it boils down to is that banks need people a lot more than people need banks. 
but we're made to believe, Keith, that we need them. We're exactly very good brainwashing. So um, this is a really fascinating article looking at this whole issue, and it just goes back to the whole issue of people who are doing jobs that they just say are simply superfluous, what David Graeber, uh, the late David Graeber, you know, has talked about BS jobs. It was a best-selling book that he wrote. It's interesting that countries with more managers are actually less productive and innovative. In other words, that we have a whole layer of middle-class managers who just restrain innovation. And if you, if you think about Silicon Valley, their phrase is move fast and break things. In other words, you know... You, be disruptors. You, sorry? Be disruptors. Be disruptive, yeah. Whereas if you're a, a, a middle manager, you, you don't want to have too much innovation, too much disturbance. It makes your life more complicated. Uh, it'll offend the board or whatever. And so they actually dampen down uh, the rate of innovation. So it's really um, very interesting. So you've got groups of people who are going home every night believing their, their work has no meaning or significance and an equal number unable to relate to their company's mission. But then on the other hand, you have people who work in healthcare, education, fire services, and the police, and they go home every day knowing that despite their modest paychecks, they've made the world a better place. So it's a really interesting mismatch between money, talent, and how people feel about the work which they're doing. And ironically, this is happening in a capitalist system. Remember, the advantage of capitalism is that it's founded on capitalist values like efficiency and productivity. And yet clearly, there are real problems here. But also, Keith, those problems, like, you know, this this also directly correlates, like, you know, every year, you know, we worked at Sunrise for a period of time, and they always cover this kind of thing. But every year they do a happiness study about of happiness around the world, and they equate it to how much money you earn. And what they have found again and again, that if you can comfortably afford your mortgage, you can take your family on holidays and eat out or whatever, in probably in a more Western society, that's probably generally the rule of thumb. You don't need any more than that. And that amount equates to about $75,000 yeah. or $80,000 in Australia. So per, per, like per earning person. So to earn that money is like a frontline job. So yeah, that that would make sense, you know, yeah. that, that you can tick all the happiness boxes by not earning the most extraordinary amount of money. You're more likely to be happier without earning all that money. Absolutely. And, and what is interesting with that study, uh, which was done 10 years ago, and it's now, so the figure would be closer to 90,000, at least in the United States. What is interesting is, is that I think I make the distinction between happiness and a reduction of anxiety. I think when you reach a certain level of basic income, you are no longer anxious about where your next meal is coming from. You can pay your rent or pay mm -hmm. your mortgage or whatever. That's the key factor. Yep. As for trying to buy extra happiness, well, who knows? You know, but but we know we can reduce anxiety yep. by giving people more money. And we make a happier society and we develop social trust. And in the end, you could be like the Republic of Ireland, you can go for six months without banking. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> See, what an excellent example, by the way, Keith. It, it, it's a fantastic article. So the article is by the economist called Rutgers Bregman, B-R-E-G-M-A-M. Why Garbage Men Should Earn More Than Bankers. It was published in 2016, still easily available on the internet. Thank you, Dr. Keith. Thank you. Global Truths was presented by Dr. Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. 
listener.